You're listening to The Counseling Clinic with Aisha Jean and Lisa Michelle, the show for up-and-coming mental health professionals, advocates, and anyone else who wants to learn more about the mental health field from two not-so-professional professionals. Hello, folks. Hey, guys. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you if you are a returning listener. If you're new here, welcome. Um, We are in the middle of our Not So Great Therapy series. Um, And remember, this series is about stuff that happens in therapy that is not so great that can lead to harm being done to clients. So what we hope to accomplish with this series is that both that clinicians and clients can benefit from all of this information. Um, so today we have people here to share the student perspective with us. Remember, we've done our personal perspective, we've done the um, professional perspective, and now we're on students. So we have Sarah Rather here. Um, she is a recent graduate of Delta State University with a master's of education in clinical mental health counseling. She currently works at Forward Counseling in Tennessee, where she's been since June. Um, her interests, primary interests are working with emerging adults. Remember, we talked about that, had a whole episode, love that term. Um, so she's working with emerging adults on a variety of topics, such as grief, trauma, depression, anxiety, and transition issues. She's an avid researcher and enjoys learning about uh, feminist theory, LGBTQ plus advocacy, ways to advocate for breaking mental health care stigmas, and existentialism. She's human first and therapist second. Sarah, you want to say hello? Hi, everyone. Glad to be here this morning. Thank you. We also have Elizabeth Weaver, who is one semester shy of finishing her master's of social work at the University of Houston as a trauma fellow with a health and behavior health specialization. She's currently interning at an adolescent residential treatment center where she engages in individual family and group therapy. Prior to that, she interned at a behavior hospital working with adults on the adult unit. In addition to the Garden Variety Grad School education, Elizabeth has introductory training in DBT and EFFT. So Elizabeth, you wanna say hi? Hey, glad to be here. Great. We are happy to have both of you. Welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing because like we tell our listeners, that's the most important part. Uh, Yes. (laughs) You got to say yes for us to be able to get them information. Um, So thank you. Thank you for that. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Tell me what the first thing is that comes to mind when you think of not so great therapy. Let's start with Elizabeth. So the first thing that comes to mind for me is therapy that's not moving the client closer to their goals. Mm. That's good. Absolutely. What about you, Sarah? Um, I think, and as a, you know, as a therapist who also sees a therapist, I want to preface this with, I don't think I've had bad therapy. I think that's important to say, um, but maybe I'm biased, you know, I don't know. But I think that (laughs) when I think of bad therapy, I really think of like the client dreads coming. It's uncomfortable for them. Uh, Maybe they don't feel heard or understood by the therapist. And like, maybe they just hate it, honestly, you know? I think think there's a lot that goes into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot that goes into it. And Again, the point is not that the overall experience is bad. It's just some things that might be harmful. So like you said, sometimes they drag coming because they've been ordered to come, right? We all mm-hmm. hate having to be somewhere we didn't ask to be. <laughs> um, right. Which, you know, happen a lot, especially when you deal with um, children, right? When you work with, uh, with children and teenagers. So um, that's a big deal. Uh, people with um, dual diagnosis or addiction issues, you know, um, you'll run into a lot of that. But um, definitely, there are some things that as clinicians, we can do better to kind of make sure we're actually being therapeutic. For sure. Right. Yeah. Because for sure. Everything don't equal therapeutic. <laughs> so true. So 
for y'all, what were the things you heard about counseling or maybe you experienced in your own therapy um, that gave you reservations about getting into the field? Um, Sarah, you want to take this one? Yeah. Um, so I started off as a social work major in undergrad. So, um, you know, I have that scrappy social work in me. Um, but I think at first people were like, oh, you know, like you're just like you're a shrink, right? Like you're every time you, you know, you Somebody talk to me. Somebody called you a shrink when you told them you were doing social work? I'm well, not, I told them I was. No, well, I told them I was. I was doing social work in effort to like become a therapist one day, and then you mm-hmm. know entered a master's of counseling program. Um, but yeah, I think you know people just always think you know therapists, counselors, social workers are just like psychoanalyzing everything we do. You know everything. Gosh, mm-hmm. yes. and it's like no, like I'm also a human, right? Like mm-hmm. I also like do things that you do. Um, and probably worse, you know, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that was definitely something I heard, you know, and then especially starting grad school and like getting out into the world and stuff like that. Like people kind of, uh, you know, approach you differently in a way, you know, like, oh, you're a therapist. Like, mm. you're like, oh, um, and I don't know if that's me like coming from small town South or, um, you know, just being in a close knit community where mental health really isn't like talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was kind of, yeah, that was kind of my perspective on it. Um, glad, I'm glad to be in a big city now. I live in the Memphis area, Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm glad that that is not really the case anymore. Well, good. That's, that's good to know. Elizabeth, what about you? So when I was deciding to go back to school, um, to pursue my master's in social work and ultimately be a therapist, I was working at a residential treatment center in development. Um, so I wasn't working directly with clients and, I had someone tell me to, when evaluating what I wanted to do with my life, to think about it from the perspective of what problems do you like solving? Um, And they were stealing this idea from Mark Manson, who in his book of the subtle art of not giving a F, said true happiness occurs only when you find the problems you enjoy having and enjoy solving. So I did not like trying to solve what napkins to have at an event, what tablecloths, none of that. But I did really like when I got to talk to program staff and the therapists about the problems that clients were having. And so I found that those are really the problems I liked engaging in. Um, And so in a lot of ways, I think I didn't have reservations about going into therapy. Granted, um, I have learned a lot about therapy since starting my master's in social work. And um, what I tell people when they're considering going into the field is different than what people told me, mm. but um, I was pretty bright-eyed, bushy-tailed when I started my master's in social work. Yeah. So what what were some of those things that you um, are here or you've learned now, like since being in it, that you may tell someone else? So I was in a residential um, uh, residential treatment center when I was doing development, but it was not in a it really was like a low acuity residential treatment center, um, whereas my, both of my internships have been in high acuity treatment centers. And I've just realized how much more therapy is crisis management. People Mm -hmm. who are extremely suicidal, um, have severe substance abuse. And that's not all of therapy, but that's the settings I've done my um, internships at. And I don't think I was fully aware of how much of therapy that is. I think I pictured more so what I had engaged in as a client, which was voluntary and um, more introspective, self-aware, um, wanting to change the things that I was seeing my therapist to change. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because therapy is, is both of those. Do you have any intentions to work in the other side of it as, as far as like, you know, doing something less crisis management? Would, would you be interested in that? Or do you have a desire to do that, to move to that area? So I love residential. Um, I too, think residential. <laughs> I love it. I Special do. kind of people y'all are. <laughs> That's right. I, I agree. Oh, one I agree. of my colleagues, one day she said, she was like, you know, if you're not having a panic attack every day and banging your head against the wall, I don't want you as my client. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite that hardcore, but I do love residential. I plan, um, ideally I would stay in residential while I'm completing my hours. Um, once I'm an LCSW, I ultimately would like to move out of residential but for now I'm pretty happy with residential yeah I like it too and I think the skills in residential I've learned them like I've learned skills 
really quickly because the setting is so acute. Um, and so that I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I understand. I know that didn't have nothing to do with nothing, but I just <laughs> wanted to know if, you know, because, you know, we're here for up and coming professionals, you know, and, and we want them to know that there are different sides and that they get to choose where they work and where, and hopefully evaluate where they will be most effective. But I agree with you, Sarah. It does take a special type of person, but I think it takes a special yeah. type of person for every section of mental That's, health. You know, absolutely. I say that all the time about community mental health is it's less crisis not no crisis less crisis but it takes a special person to do it a long time and very very special I think all areas do you know with addictions special kind of person you know um teenagers kids special kind of all areas families families families. um couples you know marriage counseling (laughs) and things like that um even religious counseling or pastoral counseling it takes a special kind of person you know it really does in every different section you know and one thing that because you know like we said we've had the the personal episode and i've shared about how i had a therapist who kind of tried to put on her projections and her specialties on me. Um, I Mm. went in for a specific issue and she was like, let's talk about your family and your past, which is fine. That is an important piece of understanding yourself. But the issue I was going in for was much more of a clinical concern versus theoretical Mm -hmm. and philosophical internal. So that was one thing that has been something to remind myself of, like each person is a fit for the type of therapy they're going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you know, if you're like gung ho for crisis and that is where you engage the most, maybe uh, outpatient, uh, you know, voluntary outpatient is not the best fit because you may begin mm-hmm. to put that upon someone else. And that was what I experienced right. on the client side too. Right. And so for me, um, and I talk about this so regularly here, but I find that not so great therapy looks like only using one thing. So like for you two, as mm-hmm. I guess, you know, you both are, are still, uh, I guess, Sarah, you just recently graduated, but our recent or current students, um, but you also both have a good amount of work experience. And for me, that really helps with perspective, right? And I find that what not so great therapy looks like for me is one of those therapists who who is like one or the other, right? So a lot of times when a student comes out and they don't have any experience to go on, then they're like, oh, which which theory did you use? You know, because I'm partial to this one, you know? So it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, that's the only theory that works. You know, are you sure you can do the other one? You know, so <laughs> I'm sorry about the question. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, keep it, keep it. <laughs> but you know, they, they and and they forget about putting things into perspective and being able to move with the client. And even with people who have a ton of work experience, they for whatever reason want to devalue the theory and the background and the education that they receive, mm-hmm. uh, which they really are so important and they they need to work together like they need to and I find that that so many people try to separate them and only like one or the other mm-hmm. I want to echo something you said you know it's like it's either one or the other right it's mm-hmm. like we're either not using theory to inform our practice at all and we're just being so you know person-centered right. is a theory yes but we're just being so humanistic that it's like right. what are we doing here you know right. but then there is that theoretical like foundation I think is a good way to put it yes of like how how am I as a therapist how am I Sarah as a therapist moving in those ebbs and flows with my client and I think bad therapy would be we are on two completely different football fields. Absolutely. We are, you know, we are yeah. not, we did not get scheduled for the same day, much <laughs> right. less, you know, like we are not playing each other at all. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think uh, there's a book I read in my grad program. I have all my books up here. That's why I'm looking. Gift of Therapy by Yalom. Have y'all read this? I'm like, halfway through currently. <laughs> one of, one of the best, I think that, and it's like the gold standard, right? Like Yalom's the guy, one of, mm-hmm. one of the guys, <laughs> right. you know, him and, him and Carl Rogers. But I think, you know, the minute that we forget that we are like a fellow human in the room with our client is like the minute it goes 
it goes off the rails. You know, like Mm -hmm. the minute we forget that the person sitting across from us is just as human as we are. And while we're trying to build that, that theoretical ladder, like Mm -hmm. the minute we get too caught up there is like, that's when it's bad therapy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, In supervision, my supervisor would tell me, you know, it's how he would stress how important it was to have a working knowledge of different theories and and also continuing education because I mean Mm -hmm. we know another theory comes out every day Um, so you know but it's important to have those and one of the things that I did because he was talking about like keeping a um kind of like a notebook of or like a a kind of a go-to to to where I wanted to refer to something or something like that um I started uh Pinterest um with different theories and stuff like that because I mean you know Pinterest is the key right (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes girl yeah but but it was it was beneficial obviously some of them I would have to do on my own but but they did have enough information to kind of get me started on you know to be able to go forward and not have to build everything up. So we already talked about what not so great therapy or therapists look like. So do you feel like you saw any of that in your graduate program? I'll go first on this one. I think first the first part was I taught that in, in grad school. I think I was taught how not... I think I was taught how to be a good therapist. Good. And I can say that, I can say that confidently, I think. I love our program. We have astounding professors that had probably bad experiences and learned mm-hmm. from that. And thus, we get to learn from the good experience, right? You know, did I see it in my classmates? Sure. And I was probably one of those too, right? Like when I right. first started, right. did I see like the not so great things? Yes. Like I think of, one of my first times sitting with a client, we have a thing called like a pre-prac lab, pre-practicum. And we were just talking about like how comfortable we are with silence. You know, two years ago, heck no. Like I could not be quiet to save my life. <laughs> so I think, you know, was I taught how to be a good therapist? I think I was. Good for you. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm and really, I'm really, yeah, I'm really proud to say that, that I come from, from where I come from. And, and people who taught me approach approach our work with such like intentionality and thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. um, that it really has given me a good springboard Mm -hmm. to move into the field. Cause like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm a whole therapist now. Like there's no counselor in training behind my name. It's like Sarah rather, you know, she's your gal. Um, (laughs) And as I work, as I work towards licensure, I just feel really like grounded in the fact that I had a good education and that good. I can use that to help people, you know? Yeah. Um, but has it been a rocky road? H-E double hockey sticks? Yes. Like, <laughs> you know, grad school freshman me is not the same me that's sitting here today. So, but I'm, I'm proud to say that I think I was, I was taught how to do good therapy and, and not, mm-hmm. not, not so great therapy. Good. So I think for um, me, being from a master's program, I think it varies so much within the program. So I came in knowing that I wanted to be a therapist, which is not the case for all social workers. Right. Um, It's a more varied field. And so because of that, I knew exactly what type of internships I wanted Mm -hmm. and exactly what type of classes I wanted. I knew I wanted to do a health and behavioral health specialization and a trauma fellowship. Like I came in knowing all of that. And Mm -hmm. I think because of that, yes, my program has prepared me, but I also don't feel like it's necessarily... 100% the program I think it's also like a good part because I knew what I wanted to do right and also you have some work experience too yeah yeah and I think where social work is great and like what absolutely wonderful is in that person and environment perspective being justice informed learning about macro systems what clients Mm -hmm. are facing outside of our room and how to be aware of those things and address those things in the counseling space like addressing the fact that I'm a white cisgender heterosexual female how does that impact you as my client how -hmm. can we work forward how can I understand you better all of those things I think my program was incredible where I think it was more me in my program is my field experiences um I have had incredible field I don't know what y'all call it we call it field or practicum I'm not sure what it's called in LPC um 
same thing. And I've had really, yeah. I've had really good experiences. Um, I went in knowing what I wanted and I interviewed for both my first and second year practicums and made sure that the things I wanted to learn specific therapeutic techniques, to have experience with individuals, families, and groups, those things were met. Um, having a really good supervisor has been important to me in both of my internships. And so those things mm -hmm. were met, but I also look at with my, some of my peers, like that's not the case. And, um, almost through no fault of their own. Like they're just kind of getting thrown into it and they maybe don't have good supervision or because our program is both, it's micro and macro, they maybe don't have the adequate education going in. Um, Michelle can tell you, I read all the time. It's one of my most annoying traits. Um, and so like, I do a lot of outside reading that my program doesn't require that I think has also prepared me. And so I kind of think of all of it as my program, right? Because it's these two years of my life that I've been in school, but there is, if you like piece it out a little bit, it's like, okay, maybe it's 70% my program, 30% my own initiative. Mm -hmm. And I also still feel like completely inadequate most of the time and in supervision, I'm like, help. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right. Sarah, Sarah, imposter syndrome rather over here. Let me tell oh. you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not old enough to be where I am. <laughs> the imposter syndrome hit much harder than I expected. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And Aisha knows, but you know, because I had been kind of in and out of therapy for years before becoming a therapist, that sense of like, I'm on this side of the room. <laughs> You're listening these to me for some These stupid people reason. are coming to me. They're paying to see me. It, it, it is weird. So kind of on your note, Elizabeth, with the classmates and, and colleagues, do you seem to hear any specific thing from them on maybe why it is so different, whether it's lack of goal, like you said, you know, maybe lack of just knowing what specific they want. Um, do you think there's anything that's kind of going on that is just not as directive? So I don't work with any of my classmates in my internships. Okay. So what I've seen as bad therapy is most of the time people who went to different programs than me. Um, what I hear with my classmates, and again, I'm not seeing how they're actually practicing. Right. So I don't know how it's translating into their practice, mm -hmm. but I hear a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of like, how do we actually do therapy? Mm. We're here, we're doing it. You're too. How do we do this? So I do think that's probably a weakness that's in my program is that actual like how to, like we talk a lot about theory. We talk a lot about mm -hmm. the macro system. We talk mm -hmm. a lot about policy. We do talk about how to do therapy, but I think not as much as we probably could to make people mm -hmm. feel a little more prepared. That is something that I, looking back on my program and that was the same thing of like, there were times that I, before I graduated, I remember thinking, Okay, I just want to make sure everyone, is this the how? Am I, are we executing this correctly? Because there were so many, it was so tech, to an extent. And I think, I don't know about social work, but I know counseling can be this way, especially in the beginning of training, it's textbook. And it's very, very tech. You got to know your theory. You got to know exercises that go along with that theory. And then you got to be able to match them up like it's a test or something. And I had a professor who talked with me about that. She's like, you can textbook all day long. And you can feel that and know that, but until you can apply it properly on your own in the room, you're not necessarily ready. And so I know for, for me, that's how I felt too, uh, in the beginning of like, just trying to make sure like, is this the how is this right? And I think part of that comes with supervision during school, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you said the pre-prac lab, you know, we did the video sessions in the very beginning and then mm -hmm. you had everybody critique them. I personally think one of the training things is that could go a little longer from people I know from different programs and different things. Like, I think that could kind of go longer, mm -hmm. um, you know, do that a little more in order to make people feel confident in that. Cause for our program, it was kind of a start with it, then a gap. Right. And then yeah. go back to evaluating and yeah, the recordings I, I and all that. Right. Right. Yeah. I can see that, but I'm, I'm glad that, you said all of that, Elizabeth, because I think that listeners and clinicians and clients all only uh, tend to look at one part of it, but it's really all of it. And that's why we, we have the show because, you know, I say all the time, I don't think anybody's here because they 
don't want to be helpful you know <laughs> I think everybody mm-hmm. has their intent to be helpful but we're all we we all exist outside of the office right so like you said you coming in knowing what you wanted to do is very different from a student who doesn't you know we talk about professors who practice looking very different from pre- professors who don't you know um clients who've already had experiences in therapy look very different from clients who haven't you know so all of those things make a difference and they all still work together so i think which is another reason i feel like evaluation is so important because it helps you figure out what to take with you and what to leave, you know, because you'll get all of that. You, you, you are responsible for weeding out the stuff that doesn't work for you, you know, and hopefully if you are exceptionally blessed and lucky, (laughs) you might have some people to help you along the way and say, Hey, probably leave that, you know, (laughs) don't use that. (laughs) You know, but, but ultimately you're responsible for, figuring out what what works and what doesn't and also figuring out how to be flexible at the end of it you know because that's what what your clients need they need the flexibility from you to be able to move with them you know Mm -hmm. so I'm really glad you mentioned all of that so positive and negatives right with therapy so I've been talking about some not so great things or not so great things in the training aspect what should it look like what should positive helpful good if you will, air quotes, um, <laughs> therapy look like? I have to think for a minute before I answer, but either no, one is fine, fine for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, you know, what does what does good therapy look like? In, in my opinion, as a recent graduate, you know, <laughs> a, a baby in my career, if you will. Mm-hmm. On the therapist side, I think it looks like me coming to the session. I've been doing a lot of telehealth sessions recently because of COVID. Bless you. Um, thank you. Right. I will take all of the, all of the love. Um, <laughs> so I feel weird saying like coming into the room, but I think it's me showing up, getting to sit with my client, hearing them, understanding what they're saying. Like we're having that exchange of empathy. Um, the ladder of, of theory that I'm building as they're talking doesn't drown out what they're actually saying right mm-hmm. I'm getting to hear them I'm getting to sit with them as another human I'm honoring that space and at the end of it something has happened right and I don't know what that is mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but at the end of it I'm closing up saying like okay I'm, I honored this time as a therapist I'm using my knowledge my training my skills to help this client move forward And I think we did that in some way over the past hour. Mm -hmm. I think like the humanistic side of me comes out a lot when I, when I talk about that, because, you know, it is a great honor to have this title as, Mm -hmm. you know, therapist. Like it is a great honor that people come to me and say like, Sarah, this is what's happened in my week. And this is what I'm struggling with. Like that Mm -hmm. is a, that is a privilege So I think, you know, as a therapist, what does good therapy look like to me? It's just hearing people, but also being sure that I draw on the training and the skills that I possess. And, and, you know, my skills are different than Elizabeth's skills. Like we're two completely different people. Um, You know, she's, she's crisis queen. I do not like crisis. Like, (laughs) like my voice is slow and steady and that is how I do therapy. (laughs) Um, Yes. But, but on the flip side, as a client, you know, I said this earlier, I'm a therapist who sees a therapist. And as a client, I feel like good therapy is I'm being heard. The person on the other side, whether it's on the other side of the screen or on the other side of the room, six feet away, you know, due to COVID, the person that's listening to me hears me. She, I see female therapists. It's, you know, I'm a woman. I find it more comfortable to speak to a woman. You know, she understands what I'm saying. She's using her skills and knowledge and theoretical orientation to help me get where I want to go. Um, so, I, you know, I hope that answers the question. Like, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, it sense? absolutely does. It absolutely does. And if I can kind of add to that, that makes a ton of sense to me because it. <laughs> In going to therapy, I I can absolutely be a therapist's worst nightmare. 
<laughs> dependent on the skill level because yeah. I don't say a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes a lot of work to listen to me, right? Be- <laughs> Especially if you're uncomfortable with silence or if, um, because I, I like to to say what I actually mean. And and people have a hard time with that, trained people and untrained people, right? Sometimes people listen to argue. Sometimes people listen and, and think that I'm saying something that I'm not, even though I'm very intentional about my words. You know, <laughs> sometimes people get uncomfortable during my silence and they make stuff up and then they miss what I actually did say, you know? So I can see that there, I can see that being a very challenging for a therapist but also like you said that's what good therapy looks like you know practice you know I don't mind people practicing with me (laughs) I don't mind practice Mm -hmm. you know we don't have one of the longest grad programs in the history of the world for nothing Mm -hmm. right like we like it's a 60 hour program right come on you know but yeah I think I really think like the human side of me speaks more to that question of like Yes, I am trained. Yes, you know, I have put in the work, but it's human to human and one human happens to be wearing a therapist hat, mm-hmm. right? And that informs how we move, how we ebb and flow with the client. Nice. Elizabeth? I think, uh, this is a hard question. Um, because I think that positive therapy is very flexible um, and willing to adjust to what the client needs. I also think of really hearing the client um, because of working in residential settings. A lot of times the agency you're working in has very clear goals for the client and those goals may or may not match what the client Absolutely. wants That's for themselves. Very often the case. Special professional you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and being able to like hold that and say like, mm-hmm. these are the goals of the agency. This is what it's going to come back on me. But also if these aren't your goals, I'm not going to impose them on you. Right. Um, right. And, um, and that way I think like advocating for that client in the mm-hmm. setting. Um, and, and like, I think for me, so I'm working with teenagers right now. And so what you said, Sarah, like hearing and understanding the client also for me, like making sure the client understands me. Um, I have a client right now who has missed a lot of school because of his family situation. And I realized that like in school, Elizabeth does not always translate well to a teenage boy who has never been to therapy in his entire life. So Mm -hmm. taking the time to say like, does that make sense? Okay. It makes sense. Repeat back to me what I said. What does that mean to you? Mm -hmm. And um, making sure that we really are on the same page and we're moving towards his goals or Mm -hmm. like the client's goals, Um, not my goals for the client or the agency's goals for the client. And that's Mm -hmm. really difficult for me at times because like I have my own cultural perspective. I have my own values. I bring those things into the room. And for some of these kiddos, like I want things for them um, Mm -hmm. that they may or may not want for themselves. And maybe they don't want them now. And 10 years down the line, they do want those things. Uh, Maybe they don't know that they want them because they don't know they can Mm -hmm. have them yet. Yep. You know? the, yeah. the autonomy of the client, the autonomy mm-hmm. that they bring into the room is so right. important. Yeah. And just really honoring the self-determination of the client. And I think the one word that kept coming to mind when I thought about bad therapy was um, inflexibility. So I think really mm-hmm. positive therapy is flexibility. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I, I like positive. Thank you for saying that. I like positive. <laughs> Something you said too about translating. You know, I think that's something that is so important to, to Mm -hmm. discuss when you're talking about the not so great therapy and great therapy, um, Mm -hmm. is translating, you know, you will have clients who don't look like you are not the same age, don't believe the same things. Mm -hmm. Um, like that happens, whether it's residential IOP outpatient, whatever. And so learning, I, I guess the art, um, or the skill, to make sure what you I are say saying. Bold. <laughs> and there is, there's bold. a way to, yeah. It's bold. The, the magic of doing that. <laughs> well, because, you know, that's something um, that's been important to me over the last little bit, specifically when dealing with, with um, a lot of stuff going on in, in our world right now, that plays into each person in the room. Mm-hmm. So now translating, mm-hmm. did that make sense? Did, 
did that come across because they can perceive it any way they want. That's right. the, the beauty right. of perception. Right. Uh, but it's also the danger in, like you said, taking the time to say, does that make sense? Oh, we'll repeat it back. Let's make sure we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, because I think sometimes therapists can get on their high horse and mm-hmm. assume because they're the expert in the room, air quotes again for listeners, <laughs> um, that what they said surely makes sense. And I think that's such right. a dangerous game to play. So I'm glad right. you bring that up. Yeah. And I think that sometimes it's unintentional, right? Like they don't mean to be on a high horse, but that, that can be what, what clients perceive, Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes it's because they're trying to be something else. Right. So like what Elizabeth was talking about, I've talked about that here before and working with in a residential treatment facility, you know, or um, being a special person who works with, with adolescents, (laughs) a lot of times it's, it's a lot of conflict, right? Because the adult may want them to go a certain way um, and they are pulling to do whatever it is that they feel necessary, uh, that they feel is necessary. But I think that sometimes what a therapist might feel like is trying to guide them. I was trying to say that the best way I could. <laughs> But what they might feel like is trying to guide them, trying to guide an an adolescent client could come across like parenting, right? Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Telling them, not listening to them, telling them what to do, right? Preaching to them, you know? (laughs) And and so it, it can come across every single way that you didn't mean for it to come across. (laughs) But I feel the same that I think it's more important that they leave with something than it is trying to force them to leave with what I was supposed to give them based on the agency that we worked with, you know? And I think that specifically for new professionals, I think that that can be a a very, very challenging thing to do with the type of stipulations that are kind of imposed when you enter the workforce, especially depending on the the place that you can enter when you have certain limitations based on licensure and and, Mm -hmm. um, experience level and things like that. Two things came up for me as you were talking. One, I'm like, I'm a big metaphor gal. I'm very like, I'm very heady sometimes. And I love to use metaphors with my clients. And, and that's one thing I think is one of my strengths. But as you were talking, yeah. you know, I was, I was envisioning like, you know, in, in the therapeutic exchange, right? Whether that's over Zoom right now, or if it's in the traditional setting, which I so desperately like want to get back mm-hmm. to, might I add, um, but like don't want to catch Corona. Um, <laughs> but it's that, you know, like we're just, we're, we're laying things out, right? Like the client is, is putting things on the table I'm attending to, to things on the table. And then there's just a lot, there's a lot out there in the space. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think what you were talking about, I was thinking about, you know, instead of us like stuffing things on the table into clients pockets, yeah. right. Like we want them to be able to pick that up and put it where it needs to go. Right. right. Like that is, that's autonomy to me. That's, yeah. you know, like that self-determination piece of, whatever we just did in that past Mm -hmm. hour, like you are taking it and you are are putting it up Um, and internalizing it and using it in such a way that helps them on the outside, outside of that room or outside of, you know, the zoom call. And two, my therapist does this with me. So I stole it from her and have begun using it in my own practice, but it's that simple. I think this echoes what you said too, Elizabeth, of, of just checking in with your client, like whether it's Mm -hmm. midway or at the end, like, Hey, what, like, what about this past hour was helpful? Was anything unhelpful? Mm -hmm. What can we do next time that better, like makes this hour what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think that that, that's so powerful. That's so empowering. Mm -hmm. And it really like, you know, like I tell my clients all the time, like you are in the driver's seat, you have control Mm -hmm. of the radio, you have control of the steering wheel. If, if you want me to help steer, you know, like you got to put your hair up or something, like I can help. If you want me to turn the radio down or change the channel, 
I can help. But ultimately, mm-hmm. you're taking us where we're going. And I, right. I just think that simple, like empowering nature of therapy, like that's what drew me to the field is like, wow, like that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are two things that came up for me as you were talking. I think that also informs my answer previously, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. What is good therapy? Right. Also, I think that that takes a ton of skill to one, be comfortable to ask the clients what they need and what they got, but also to build an appropriate therapeutic relationship to where they feel comfortable enough to actually tell you the truth. Because because one of the things about um, therapy is that it's uncomfortable on the client side, Um, but also once a client likes their therapist, then they they like you, you know, they like you as a person, they want to please you, right? They want you to be proud of them as their therapist. So a lot of times you'll get, yeah, that was so helpful, you know, yeah, well, I'm so glad I saw you. (laughs) But that's not always actually true. So, you know, that speaks to the importance of that therapeutic relationship to where they can actually tell you, you know, well, yeah, that was helpful, but that's not exactly what I need right now. Right. Right. I know that, that we were working on this, but can we, can we move over to this side and talk about this? This is more important to me today. That takes a lot of skill and a very strong and, and for me, again, evaluated, um, Mm -hmm. therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And I also think like working with teenagers too, um, it is so hard to get them to tell you, no, I, Mm -hmm. I hated that. I mean, some of them, some of them, that's all they'll tell you. Um, Yeah, I have, I have those uh, teenagers. It's like, I hated this. Thank you. The clients I'm currently working with are all like the, yeah, that was And I've noticed like starting really early on, um, asking them to set something on the agenda at the beginning, like what's one thing you want to talk about today. Mm -hmm. And then at the end and throughout for my clients throughout the session, checking in. Um, but like, yeah, at the end asking like, what's this helpful? What did I miss? Yeah. Love the, what did I miss question? Cause mm-hmm. going back to that kind of translation piece, we just miss things guys. That yeah. Happens, you know? Yeah. Um, I love that. And for me, that's one of the beauties of residential is that they are available to you and you're available to them, Mm -hmm. you know, so they catch you in the hallway, they catch you, you know, walking from campus to campus and they, and, you know, and you can tell them little small things like, oh, I remember you said this, right? So when I come to get you, we can talk about that, right? And that's something they can look forward to in the meantime, Or, or if they have a good enough relationship with you, then they'll stop you and say, so and so, um, when when are you coming to get me? Because I want to talk about this. Well, let's yeah. go now, right? I got a client, but I'll come get you this time. You know, so I th- that's one of the beauties for me. It's just that access for them and for you. You know, I feel like y'all trying to yeah. sell us on residential. Sarah and I yeah. over here Look, are just not having it. <laughs> I know, I, I know that's one of the places I like to be, and I know that yeah. they need people in other places. You know. <laughs> One of my first internships um, before I graduated from my undergrad was a residential facility. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned like, like that, those interactions with the LPCs there is like what got me on to, to becoming Mm -hmm. an LPC myself. And yeah, that availability and that Mm -hmm. ability to be flexible, even though it's not always Mm -hmm. the case, especially with like community mental health. um, But just that, like that, that airtime, you know, like you get a lot of FaceTime with your clients Mm -hmm. that I, that I don't get now, you know, I see my clients once a week for a 55 minute session. So yeah, it's, it, the settings are, are a lot different. Um, And in residential, I love just seeing the kids in like different settings, like in group, you get a totally different kid than you're getting Mm -hmm. a family or just a totally different kid, an individual. And it's like, it's like a puzzle you're putting together. Like, right. And you get to wait, right? You you really get to practice that patience because like <laughs> I tell people, you, you can only hide your true self for so long, right? So if you just wait and watch, they'll show you, you know, <laughs> that's literally all you got to do. You don't, you don't have to do that. Just wait. <laughs> just and it's long. that whole like, the whole microcosm of like how they operate in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like how they operate Absolutely. in the individual is not how they operate in group, which is exactly reminiscent of maybe how they operate in their family or in like right. their social circles. Right. Yeah, I think that part's really interesting. Mm-hmm. 
this can be a quick question because I, some of the conversations made me consider it. Um, and it, cause I don't know about y'all's programs, but were y'all at all, I guess in a joking way, cause you know, people ha half joke, half truth. Um, were y'all ever kind of encouraged to not go to one setting or the other? Does that make sense? Like I, I knew people who were like, Oh, don't do, don't do that kind of program. Cause they, the, the crazies, which I hate. I hate when people do that, but that's a thing, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? I'll go first if y'all not ready. <laughs> so we went on a tour of a, um, it wasn't a residential treatment facility. It was a, a, um, a smaller practice, but they, it, I don't know, it was a large, small practice. <laughs> <laughs> um, they had a lot of different services. It was just small, but um, we were meeting the staff and the lady asked us what populations did we want to work with and I said adolescents and she told me that'll change and mm -hmm. the fact that she was so mad about it like she yeah. she, she I mean she made Ooh. the face and everything and I was like okay sorry <laughs> I'll change my mind Which, now clearly it hasn't changed but you know whatever <laughs> we heard lots of that you know if you mentioned like oh, I want to work with children or I want to work with I have a very, I'm very interested in things related to like the justice system or, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of helping people navigate some of those waters, but people, they assume that you would hate it. Like, you mm -hmm. know, they kind of give you that assumption. They try to put that on you. Right. I would say in my program, um, so right social work, macro, micro, there's two tracks, your first semester, everyone's together, and then you branch mm -hmm. out. My program like has shifted from being a primarily a uh, clinical program to being more macro in um, the past couple of years with a new dean. And um, I would say that first semester, there was a lot of push to go macro. I'm not mm -hmm. macro. Mm -hmm. I was, I started the program to be clinical. So it was just annoying. I was like, why are you trying to convert me? Like, I know what yes. I want to do. Can we stop pretending like it's the smaller calling, right? Because the idea is kind of like, well, macro is where you solve the problem. Micro is where you like help the individual people downstream who are being hurt by the problem. And I was like, okay, cool. But this is my path. Thank you. Right. <laughs> and I guess my question is, is that actually true? Do you actually get to solve the problem? In my opinion, you just spend years working really hard on a bill that's probably never going to get passed. Mm. So right. it's not right. Not my <laughs> calling. Right. with the truth. Right. Right. <laughs> Within clinical, there really wasn't like any push to go one way or not go another way. It was very like, oh, kids, that's great. Teenagers, that's great. And um, take these classes. And so in my counseling program, there's two tracks, usually clinical mental health or school counseling. Um, overall, our program is more clinical. And that, I don't know if that's like a trend or anything, um, but people, you know, like everyone I came in with, say two or three, we were like, we want to work you know, out in the field. And in, in mm -hmm. our language, you know, first semester grad students, that's, we want to be a therapist, not in a school. Um, but, but no, there was never really like any push or pull in one specific track. And then once we all kind of figured out maybe like our, you know, our, our niche, like where do we want to go? Um, like I have a classmate who started out saying that she wanted to work with uh, the elderly and children. And she ended the program saying, I want to work with both the elderly and children. And our professors really tried to help her like, okay, how can we, how can we help you work with both the elderly and children? Cause you know, like that's, yeah. that's two drastically yeah. different populations. Right. Yes. Um, and you know, truth be told her internship, um, she graduated this semester. She's in my cohort, her internship, she got to vote both work with elderly and children. She had kind of like modules within her and within her internship where she was with um, elderly, kind of like Jerry Psych-ish. I, for, I forget the total details of what she did, but then she worked with children within like a day treatment program kind of. Yeah. So she like, she got her needs met, you know? Um, nice. So I think our, Is our it program- Is strange how happy I am for her? Like, <laughs> no, I am too. Like That's when she came thing. in saying that, when she came in saying that we were like, Good for you. <laughs> yeah, like, like, how's that gonna work, friend? Right. Uh, but, but she, like, she went out and did it, and she moved, and luckily, where she was from had a place that that elderly and children, and and she got, you know, she got experience there. Um, so 
yeah, I don't, and like, you know, my primary interest is like college counseling and emerging adults and what that looks like. And I had internships at um, a community college in the Mississippi Delta. And then I was lined up to intern at a bigger uh, university in the Memphis area before COVID hit. So like, I think, I think our professors like just really like, all right, this is what you're interested in. Let's see if you like it. And it was never really like, oh no, like children and the elderly, like what the heck you need to pick one. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Cause I think, cause I think I would have been doing her a disservice and like she found a place and she thrived. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Okay ladies. So before we go, obviously the point is to grow. So, <laughs> so let's talk about ways to improve. Like how can we work on getting rid of some of these bad habits or not so great things that clinicians can bring to therapy education i'm telling you i'm 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 for our listeners i have a megaphone i have a megaphone (laughs) i think i think education like we we will never know everything Mm -hmm. we as as clinicians have to have a posture of i am committed to learning because Mm -hmm. our clients will always change we will always change as people um as humans. So education, we have got to keep learning and never Mm -hmm. grow stagnant Two, you know, I think advocacy is a big part of it. Like, like as a counselor, like advocating for my profession, you know, advocating for the legitimacy of my license that I'll one day hold, um, Mm -hmm. and advocating for clients and people in treatment and stuff like that. So I think education and advocacy, education being all capital letters, advocacy being after the comma, also all capital letters. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll never know everything. We, we've got to keep learning. I love that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I won't repeat it. Um, I would say <laughs> also, um, I think, and y'all did an episode on supervision, supervision, really good supervision, really yes. transparent, honest, hard supervision. Um, At my current internship, I have a great supervisor. I also do, um, they do have like a treatment team consultation. We have so many treatment team residential. We have so many treatment team meetings. Um, And I think using those spaces um, to grow and learn from more experienced clinicians and then also taking the time after to like prune through things and say like, what fits me, what fits my client and what doesn't, Mm -hmm. like, what can I just kind of move on, you know, as well-intentioned advice that maybe doesn't even apply to the situation. So. Yeah. The, the supervision, um, learning from those who have gone before is a huge, Mm. gosh, Mm -hmm. that's been so impactful in my life. Um, and, and career is, it's, it's humbling. It's not always easy and it hurts and, but it, it's so powerful. But it's also a type of education, which is why I said yes. that's always the answer. <laughs> yes. It's always All the answer. Letters. <laughs> well, and Elizabeth, you mentioned earlier too, reading. I mean, look, mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm finishing, I'm still doing books, you know, counseling or mental health related or society related because every day is a different day. Every day is a brand new day. Something changes, something's going on in the world. There's more to learn about yourself, your clients, the therapeutic process. Yeah. Education and continuing the education. I love mm-hmm. both of y'all's answers. I had a professor who told us first semester, um, she said, if you think you have a lot of reading for grad school, just wait and see how much you read when you graduate from this program and you have real life <laughs> clients and you need Absolutely. to learn about them. Yeah. And she's Absolutely. totally right. Right. Yeah. I, I love the supervisory relationship that this profession brings mm-hmm. because it can be so, like I've had incredible supervisors and um, you know, incredible supervision, even from my professors before I got out into the field. And then, you know, when I would meet with my internship class on Monday nights and, you know, that is such like a cool aspect of being educated and like continuing yeah. your education that I, like, I'm so grateful for as a, as a baby therapist out here, like, thank God for supervision. <laughs> like what the heck would right. I do, you know? So right. yeah, supervision times a thousand. Yeah, I was in a mentorship workshop and they talked about like mentorship the right way. Um, and I know people don't like to hear that, but but there's a, a right and a wrong way for to mentor. Yes. The the wrong way is not actually mentoring. <laughs> but my point is um, you know, that that is 
it's lifelong once you mm. mentor the right way. And I think that that's one of the things that comes from supervision. When that's happening appropriately, it can lead to lifelong. And once they're no longer your supervisor, they become a mentor. And I think that that's beneficial because it also helps you build a network. You know, it, it helps you... Mm-hmm. Um, to grow in different ways as a young professional, as an up-and-coming professional, you get the evaluation, you get to try things that is really somebody else's responsibility, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, you get, to, you get to fill things out. And then, like I said, you get to refer back to them if you're lucky, if, you know, and hopefully mm-hmm. most of us end up being that lucky that we get to go back to them and, and talk to them and be professionals with each other and not just, you know, the supervisee, you know, and and then that's the beginning of your network as a professional building a relationship with other professionals. Yeah. And one thing, and I know this episode's not on supervision, but I think one of the things that's really hard about being a student therapist is um getting in the room with clients and sometimes like they're talking and I'm just thinking like I don't know what the hell to say to you. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Like, it happens. And I don't know where to go from here. Like, uh, and then having a space where you can just like sit down and say like, this is what my client said and I have no idea what to do with it. It's just such a relief, like to not have to go it alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if I can add, I would say that that's one of the beauties of the therapeutic relationship because I have absolutely had a client who has told me something and I was like, I'm not sure how to help you. Give me a second. Let me think first. Hold on. Can we put a pin in that and come back to it later? Let me me think some more. Let me do my research over the week. But but that's because I'm comfortable with the evaluation and I'm able to Mm -hmm. say, you know, I'm able to ask clients, did that make any sense for you? Did you get what you needed from me? No, I didn't get that, Miss Aisha. That, that didn't help at all. Okay, give me a second. Let me try something different, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me figure out how to move yeah. it around for you. Yeah. <laughs> also, something I love about residential is like in the session, being able to be like, I just did a terrible job explaining that. We're going to just like pause this, move on, and I'm going to mm-hmm. come back to you after I figure Absolutely. out how to say this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I did not take into account. I mean, I I heard about, I had a professor in school who talked about, because we talked about this, I think it was last week, actually, um, with Brandon, but crying, a therapist crying in a session or shedding, you know, at least a couple of tears. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, one of my professors mentioned that early on. He said, you know, they were telling something and he's crying, I'm crying, the whole thing. And I remember at first being like, are we allowed to do that? Can, are we... What? Can can we, we can't be show a emotion? What? In the room? Right. Um, and then of course along the way you learn that absolutely you can and should. Mm-hmm. But that came up the other day with one of the guests about crying in the session and and kind of a like letting the client know, hey, thank you for sharing that with me because it also impacts me as well. I can you can mm-hmm. go that extra mile. And I think along with mm-hmm. the evaluation piece, again, like you said, Aisha, that's part of that therapeutic relationship, how it should be. Right. There's a lot to the, the expert in the room situation, but there's a lot to just a person guys, just a person. Yeah. We are out here as people. And I was talking to one of my former professors who's, who's we've stepped into a, you know, mentorish relationship. And she was telling me about something that one of her colleagues said to her. And it's like, this is the first time like kind of ever that we have been experiencing the same things as our clients, right? Like Mm -hmm. 2020 as a whole, like, like COVID-19, like, yeah, COVID-19 is not exclusive to clients of therapists, right? Like COVID-19 is, is everyone. So this is also a very unique space that we're stepping into of like, you know, what now, what about COVID now, you know, because like, if, if a client's family member passes away from the virus and I have a family member who passed away from the virus, like, yeah, crying in the room, like it's going to happen. Yep. Um, so I think this is such a unique time we're stepping into as clinicians because there's so many implications. Right. And I think part of the, the idea about the crying is kind of the aspect of 
losing control, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But but I think that that's only if you only take into account the crying, right? But if you think about just the idea itself of sharing your emotions yes. with mm-hmm. a client, mm-hmm. one because yeah, you, that because exchange of, of empathy, your, right? Be, because one part of part of a lot of the work that you'll do will be um, helping them express their emotions appro- appropriately. So modeling, modeling right? That modeling. modeling. So I think it's okay mm-hmm. to, to you know um, be able to one be happy with your clients you know laugh Mm -hmm. and and tell jokes and you know different things like that helping them see that positive side but also letting them know if you're if you're angry you know or if you're upset or confused right I don't know Mm -hmm. y'all I don't got the answer to this confrontation is a huge Um, piece confrontation and that doesn't have to look angry that can just be talking let's talk about it right this is this is an Mm -hmm. issue let's talk this out Mm -hmm. um so I think that exchange of um, of emotion is the the point of not necessarily what the emotion is or what it looks like but just the exchange itself Mm -hmm. yeah and how I had that explained to me in school was like as a form of self-disclosure um, like professional mm-hmm. self-disclosure absolutely, and like being intentional and aware and thoughtful about like when you are, aren't you like uh, disclosing your emotions with the client and whether it is going to be helpful to them or not. Um, but yeah, like, especially with teenagers, sometimes it's like, mm-hmm. you don't show any emotion. You just say, I don't know every time I talk to you. So like <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the question we were told to ask ourselves is like, why am I sharing this? right? Like, is it mm-hmm. for them? Right. Is it for me? And then also being able to engage in that reflection of like, do I need to talk to my therapist about this? Right. Like, right. what about, what about this is coming up for me? That's, that's throwing, you know, maybe throwing the tears out there that maybe it's some unfinished business that I need to go take care of and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So yeah, like, why, why am I doing this? And it's such an important piece of self-reflection that, that I don't think I'll ever, you know, like I'm, I'll, forever learn about that and forever learn about myself as a yes. person as Sarah but also as like Sarah the therapist you know right I think that's something that clinicians forget all the time um or, or maybe some don't know to start with which you know is it's never too late but it is unfortunate but forgetting to ask why am I sharing Mm -hmm. this but also the other side of why am I acting this right so what Mm -hmm. information do I actually need from you and what what am I gonna use um because I remember being in class and we were gathering information from a client and and that sounds harmless and open and regular right you just gathering information it doesn't matter what it is Mm -hmm. you just need all of the information but the truth is you don't need all of the information some of it you're not gonna do nothing with and I, I I can literally hear my professor saying what are you gonna do with that information you know <laughs> what will you do with that and I think that that's something that if you're not careful you can forget about that as a clinician just mm-hmm. that 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 can be tricky right it can make you feel like you're listening but you didn't do anything with it so was it really listening you know yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah and another thing that makes me think of is one of the things I had written down when I was reading through the questions for this episode is um like therapists who are trying who are like really honestly getting their needs met in the session yeah and I think mm. some and we have needs and we bring yes. needs into the session and maybe like our needs are benign you know we we kind of need to see this client like getting better but is yeah. that really fair to the client but right. one thing I think of is like sometimes I think there's a temptation to ask questions and if we pause and like reflect really like sometimes we're just curious Mm-hmm. And that's, and it's not necessarily helpful for the client. And one thing I think right. specifically in trauma, if you right. are asking questions related right. to trauma in a, in a setting where you're either not trained um, for that, or, or you're not trained to deal with the answer appropriately, mm-hmm. then you can actively cause harm because you were curious. Right. Yes. Right. Absolutely. 
Okay, ladies, this was a wonderful discussion. I'm so thankful that you guys joined us today. Um, Hopefully this was beneficial to our listeners and uh, specifically the graduate students. Hopefully we covered enough and people learned stuff. I did. I very much enjoyed you guys. So thank you. Guys, this was lovely. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I love a good podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And I normally wouldn't do podcasts, but it's been very fun. Maybe I'll have to turn over a new leaf. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, glad we could help with that. Right. So that was Sarah Rather and Elizabeth Weaver joining us with the graduate student perspective. Um, Obviously, we want to know your thoughts and your experiences. Uh, If you are a graduate student, please let us know what you think. If you uh, would like to share an experience or tell us that we missed something, that'd be great too. Leave us a comment on today's episode. Bye, guys. Bye. listening to the counseling clinic with Aisha Jane and Lisa Michelle. Remember to check out our website at the counselingclinicpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at the counseling clinic podcast. We'll see you guys by our next session. Bye guys. The music provided by scottholmesmusic.com and our show is edited and produced by Chris Luke.